Welcome to the Health Disparities Podcast, sponsored by Movement is Life. My name is Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of Movement is Life and Director of the Center for Musculoskeletal Care at Yale School of Medicine and Yale New Haven Health. As we continue our series on COVID-19, today we focus on the impact of this pandemic on safety net hospitals. Safety net hospitals provide health care for individuals regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay and typically serve lower income communities. Today, my guest is Mr. Delvecchio Finley, Chief Executive Officer of Alameda Health Systems in Oakland, California. Welcome, Mr. Finley. Thank you, Mary. I'm really excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity to engage with you. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I want to share with our listeners and audience a few words from your website, which describes your health system. As a longtime pillar in our communities, we lead in extending care, wellness, and prevention to all. We are a haven for the most vulnerable among us, an advocate for equitable, compassionate, and culturally sensitive care, regardless of social and financial barriers. We are in the vanguard of medical excellence and a teaching hospital that draws the nation's best medical students. Delvecchio, that is a beautiful description. Could you please tell our readers more about Alameda Health System and the community you care for? Absolutely, and thank you for the the kind words. Um, I, I think it really is a reflection of uh, both who we who we um, uh, hope to be for our community and aspire to be as uh, individuals who are privileged with the opportunity to serve uh, that, this uh, community. So Alameda Health System is a, a safety net organization. Uh, we're an integrated delivery system comprised of acute care hospitals, a level one trauma center, uh, behavioral health uh, services, and psych emergency and inpatient psych, um, a, a couple of integrated um, uh, community-based wellness centers where we provide primary and specialty care services and a series of post-acute services, including uh, um, rehab services, acute rehab, um, subacute uh, services, and several skilled nursing facilities. We're based in Oakland, California. Uh, we have about 4,600 employees, uh, have over 800 uh, beds across our system. Uh, we have about 1,000 physicians and uh, nearly 500 volunteers who uh, serve our community through our organization and uh, provide uh, several hundred thousand uh, uh, visits in our uh, outpatient facilities, in our emergency rooms, and uh, um, just under about uh, 17,000 discharges in our acute care facilities over the course of an annual year. So you, you have a very robust and comprehensive system. We do. We very much uh, do. And uh, we're fortunate to do that. We have our local elected officials who really have a, um, a, a really firm uh, value base that says that uh, everyone in our community has uh, the uh, obligation, I would say, or we have the obligation to provide uh, equitable access to high quality of care to, to everyone in our community, irrespective of their uh, race, ethnicity, uh, ethnic uh, background, or their national origin, uh, gender, um, uh, and or their social economic circumstances. Our, our mission here is caring, healing, teaching, and serving all. That's another uh, beautiful mission statement. There are many challenges to to uh, delivering on that mission. Can you share uh, with our audience 
what some of those the major challenges are for you just in normal life. Yeah. And, and then and because I want people to have um, some appreciation and feel for what uh, a safety net health system is and mm-hmm. provides and the kind of challenges that you face in normal times. And then we're going to evolve into a conversation about the pandemic. Absolutely, Mary. That's a great question. And, and you know, sometimes we, we're so steeped in the work that we do that um, we, we, we actually lose track of the, the intricacies and the uh, uniqueness of, of this uh, great privilege that we have to serve our community. Uh, but having had the opportunity to work in uh, several settings uh, around the country, many, or around the state, and particularly many of them similar to our, our current, my current role with Alameda Health System, but also a few outside, um, I would say safety net organizations serve a very unique role in our community. Um, uh, some of the differences in terms of challenges that we often uh, address within our community is that uh, we have individuals who we serve a disproportionate number of people who are either uninsured or on uh, public insurance of some form, uh, which uh, generally is categorized as underinsured uh, because the nature of the coverage that they have uh, may not sufficiently provide for um, sufficient reimbursement for the um, the uh, course of care that they that they need. Uh, a large part of that is because of uh, what we have now uh, um, uh, aptly described as the social determinants of health uh, in that we have a vast number of uh, uh, our patient population who are not just uh, confounded with um, uh, health care needs, sometimes uh, some very serious health care needs in terms of acute conditions and or chronic conditions like cancer or diabetes or heart failure and things like that, that for any of us would be quite uh, consuming and, and would be an intense sort of effort just to focus on caring for ourselves in that context. Uh, context, but oftentimes our our, uh, patients in our population are confounded by even a a host of other challenges like equitable access to housing or or insufficient uh, access to housing, um, uh, food insecurity, uh, um, access to stable employment so that they can then provide for uh, housing and other uh, social needs for themselves and their families, transportation challenges and the like. So um, we are often, uh, and again, a privilege, and we have a great uh, foundation and volunteers and donors in our community who help us, uh, but the needs can often overwhelm the system and are are very great in terms of not just providing for excellent, uh, high quality care, but supporting individuals to get to a appointments, to maintain those appointments, uh, to be able to um, have sufficient food so that they can take uh, medicine that they may uh, need to take, have access to those medications to keep them from uh, being readmitted uh, for avoidable reasons, uh, getting them into um, um, reliable and stable uh, sheltering and things like that. So these are a lot of things that we have to do in addition to meeting our patients' care needs. The pandemic as we know, is hitting some regions very hard. And we also know that it's affecting certain communities disproportionately, um, communities of color, mm-hmm. both African-American, Hispanic Latinos, as compared to uh, some Caucasian communities. At least we're starting, we're seeing this data coming out particularly in um, urban areas. Mm-hmm. So how has COVID-19 impacted impacting? How is it impacting your community and your health system? Yeah, so great question. Uh, and uh, the the um, 
the the premise that you have outlined uh, absolutely is reflecting in our community as well. So Alameda County, uh, which includes the city of Oakland as its uh, county seat, um, um, is one of the most uh, diverse communities or diverse counties in the country. Uh, we have a significant representation of Hispanic and uh, Latino populations, African-American populations, um, um, Caucasian, as well as Asian uh, uh, people of, of, of various Asian origins. We serve uh, a, a population that is quite diverse in the ways in which we just described, but also um, uh, the socioeconomic spectrum that we serve. And so uh, in our county, we've seen um, uh, to date, uh, a little over 1,100, I think, positive uh, COVID-19 patients. Um, um, uh, fortunately, uh, not as many um, uh, patients have been uh, requiring hospitalizations, though we've had a lot who have required hospitalizations and ICU stays and ventilation to support their course of care. Um, we have not experienced a significant number of deaths, but obviously we our heart goes out to anyone uh, who has lost their life um, relative to this uh, viral uh, pandemic or anything else. But um, uh, we have had a very responsive uh, public health system here, as well as the a care delivery system here with our partners. Um, but as it relates to uh, race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status, uh, our experience thus far seems to bear out with what we've seen around the country. And uh, at least within our own organization, and I think within our county, uh, the presentation of positive COVID-19 cases has been um, slightly greater in the uh, Latino population than it has been um, in others, but that is followed by African-American and Asian and other communities from there. So here you are, CEO of this basically safety net health system, and along comes COVID-19. Walk us through kind of your thought process of how you were going to prepare your health system to deal with this major public health crisis. I mean, the likes that, uh, I mean, I've never seen it in my lifetime, right? right. And, right. and you have a responsibility to your employees and the patients in the community. I mean, this is, this is tough stuff. So how, how did you play this out in your mind? How did you think about the steps that you needed to take? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, our, our efforts uh, for uh, responding and preparing for uh, uh, the pandemic um, to, to uh, present in a meaningful way in the United States uh, started um, late late January, early February, as we uh, monitored uh, things that were happening uh, in uh, China and in other countries and starting to uh, uh, present themselves in the US. Um, we we have an emergency incident command system. Uh, it's a similar sort of uh, uh, response um, system for emergencies that hospitals and other um, uh, entities use uh, for mass casualties and other sorts of uh, issues. Uh, we started ours virtually because at that time we had no presentation or at least no known presentations within our organization. But um, uh, because we know uh, how uh, viral uh, pandemics can play out or are likely to play out from what we've mm -hmm. heard, certainly didn't expect this, uh, uh, we started to do some of the things that we expected, which is to start to take inventory of uh, personal protective equipment that we had, um, um, look at our disaster preparedness plans, start to prepare for uh, looking at our facilities and seeing what sort of things we needed in terms 
terms of uh, things like ICU beds and ventilators based off of what we were seeing in other countries. Um, we were doing that work sort of in earnest over, over the uh, preceding weeks. Uh, we were actually uh, preparing for and had submitted uh, a request, um, uh, for, fortunately for us, fairly early on uh, for additional PPE from the strategic national stockpile. Uh, because in early March, you may recall, uh, we had our first um, known uh, presentation of community spread in the uh, Northern California area. And that uh, happened concurrent to a uh, Princess Cruise Line ship being um, just off the harbor here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So we fully implemented our system uh, just as the decision had may been made between the collaboration between the city of Oakland, the state of California and the federal government to allow the cruise ship to dock in Oakland and to uh, immediately uh, appropriately disposition those patients on the ship who were uh, COVID-19 positive, as well as people who had uh, delayed care needs, uh, uh, whether they were US citizens or otherwise, uh, that may need to be treated in some of our facilities in the local area. Uh, so we um, obviously, as you, you alluded in your question, had to um, consider what we currently had in our uh, inpatient uh, facilities, what we were currently experiencing in our emergency rooms, and began to prepare to accommodate uh, some of the needs that were going to come through supporting just that disembarkment of the cruise ship. And uh, we were able to do that successfully. Uh, we didn't have to take uh, the other sort of public safety interventions around sheltering in place and reducing our uh, clinical load in terms of reducing uh, surgeries, uh, elective surgeries and uh, clinical visits during that week. Uh, but it happened shortly thereafter. Uh, effectively, the following week uh, was when uh, we started to see more incidents, uh, particularly in our, our neighboring county, uh, mm -hmm. but starting to gradually uh, come to our county as well. And I uh, really want to thank the uh, the, the, the uh, solid uh, leadership and um, uh, direction from some of our local leaders to begin sheltering in place and to be implement measures that uh, allowed us to ratchet up our, our planning, our response. Um, I mentioned we had um, uh, requested something from the Strategic National Stockpile fairly early. We got a uh, almost an instant um, um, contribution of masks and gowns and other personal protective equipment uh, fairly early on that helped us in our response while then we started to actively work to secure more uh, to prepare for the surge. So how are things different for Alameda Health System today in terms of the clinical services that you're providing compared to normal? It's a great question. You know, it's uh, one of one of my board members uh, um, remarked that w one of the if we were looking for a refreshing thing during all of this was that a lot of things that heretofore seemed a lot more complicated and uh, difficult to to do became a little less uh, complicated as people aligned and 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 worked to make things happen. So uh, we um, uh, we had the good fortune uh, a few months ago of going live on a system wide electronic health record, a very tough endeavor that we prepared for for about two years. Uh, but fortunately, we were on that system that allowed us to have a nice 
nice platform to do telemedicine. And telemedicine was something that we were doing uh, a little bit of in terms of electronic consultations and working with our patients through patient portals, but not a lot of visits uh, in our outpatient setting, as well as um, using telemedicine across our facilities. Um, part of that hampered by the reimbursement environment. As I mentioned, we struggle often. We, are, we um, benefit from supplemental funding and other things, but the gap is always there. Well, suddenly reimbursement for uh, uh, telemedicine was available. Suddenly dollars were uh, uh, directed to be used to convert as many visits as possible uh, to in support of social distancing to telemedicine. And we were able to mobile, mobilize our IT teams and some of our external uh, uh, colleagues and partners to be able to do a lot more of that uh, in a very uh, uh, compact period of time uh, to convert um, as many of our visits over that were uh, appropriate to that sort of thing as possible. So we're, we're now, we've done on, uh, several thousand visits uh, via telemedicine now. Uh, the patient uh, feedback actually has been quite good. They're, they are avoiding the commute. Some of our patients sometimes have to uh, take two or three buses to get to us uh, and then get back home. So now they're getting calls uh, directly from their provider in their home. Sometimes they're engaging their loved ones in a teleconference so that everybody's participating in supporting that person's care. Um, and they're getting very, uh, as um, uh, uh, focused attention on their needs as they would have if they were in person, but obviously in this virtual context. Some of that actually, including more proactive re uh, outreach on our parts because we recognize that people are sheltering at home and sometimes in um, uh, situations where they're the only person around and we're we're wanting to make sure they have what they need and if they absolutely need to come to a visit that we do that. So that's been a big part of how things are different. Uh, I will say on the inpatient side, if I may, and in our EDs, um, uh, our community has responded to social distancing. Um, uh, we have less volume in our organization uh, now than we normally would, um, uh, which is refreshing because that means that people are at least okay. Hopefully it means that people are okay and they're taking care of themselves and they're trying to make sure that they continue to be well. Um, uh, but at the same time, that means that in, um, as essential workers and we are deemed essential workers to be ready for the surge, uh, we are uh, losing a lot of revenue uh, that we rely on. And so uh, the cash flow is um, is a bit of a challenge. And obviously we are constantly struggling with uh, access, reliable access to PPE to protect our staff and to protect the patients who are within our uh, facilities. So I want to follow up on, on the comment that you made about telehealth. And I, I often think, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Absolutely. I mean, I could I could say a similar story. We've been talking here in my health system about televisit, it's in telemedicine, and all of a sudden now, you know what? We're, we're able to do it. I mean, yep. it, it, it really took this uh, event to get the physicians and the nurses and everybody to really understand that, no, you just got to do it because people don't like to change and change mm -hmm. can be hard. And, mm -hmm. and it is helpful now that there is some reimbursement for the efforts. Absolutely. One of the things that, one of the things that, um, has been a concern is the digital gap or the digital divide that some people have referred to in terms of communities of color perhaps being less comfortable or less savvy with technology. And that the telemedicine approach um, may actually widen disparities if you mm -hmm. have communities of color or or low income communities because i think this could this could play out in rural america with yep. 
white right. communities, right, that mm-hmm, don't have mm-hmm. access to the internet, they don't they don't have good technology, um, then then telemedicine isn't isn't really going to work for them. Right. So so at least for your population, do you sense that there are are race ethnic barriers to engagement uh, with telemedicine for for those populations? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the premise, uh, I think, uh, definitely has a, a foundation uh, um, or a basis in, in, in truth. Um, you know, I think it, it, it varies in communities. I agree with you. It's not just uh, urban communities and, uh, and communities of color, but also rural communities. And a lot of that um, uh, is around the infrastructure, not just the access to equipment or the, um, the um, uh, level of uh, technical facility, uh, but if you have broadband access and it's reliable, if you're trying to do video visits, that's going to be a barrier if you don't. Um, I was actually somewhat surprised that a lot of telemedicine is really telephonic. Um, uh, we are doing both, um, uh, which is uh, great because there are times when uh, there certainly is a, a great currency to being able to visualize uh, uh, in a um, um, I forget the actual word, but but basically in a, a, a synchronous way, having both the phone and the video so that you can interact mm-hmm. with people and be present in that way, uh, see certain lesions or other things that you need to check on if you're looking at um, uh, dials on certain uh, devices and things like that, uh, that certainly helps. Um, so for us, I feel like it's actually uh, not been as pronounced as, as we um, uh, as one might um, sort of initially uh, suspect. And I think part of that is because a lot of it has been either if it is um, a synchronous uh, video visit or a phone call, we've just been as flexible with our patients as we can to, to do that. Uh, the other thing is uh, we have, as I mentioned, we have gone live on our EHR. And one of the things we really tried to um, uh, push out, and we had several tens of thousands of patients, not nearly our goal, but we were at least well out of the gate with having people enroll in our patient portal. And we We push out a lot of information via the patient portal. We're trying to make it as user-friendly as possible, but also as valuable to our patients so they don't just get, you know, lab uh, diagnostics and results, but they can also um, uh, send communications to their care team. Uh, They can schedule appointments and things like that. So so we've been gradually, I think, closing that that gap uh, for our our community. And also, I think the gap is a bit more pronounced, not just in a... um, uh, a social economic context or a racial context, but it also is a uh, there's a uh, age related context as well. So, uh, in many of our communities, uh, cell phones are uh, sometimes more ubiquitous than food, uh, uh, unfortunately. But it's a means and a necessity of life, and I think people have understood that. Now, having reliable access when people are using things like uh, I guess they call burner phones or phones that you know aren't, aren't just like you know established phone with a um, uh, a longitudinal sort of basis, but one that you buy for the number of minutes and things like that. That can be a bit of a challenge. Right. Um, uh, but we're 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 doing that a lot more. One of the challenges for us internally, I would say, on the inpatient side, is the ability to invest in. Um, a lot of uh, devices like iPads and other sorts of tools to be able to have within our system to support our patients. So one of the things I'm really pleased to say, I just learned about this last night, we knew about other uh, health systems that were getting donations of iPads and that helped the providers to uh, not only interact with their patients when they're in the setting and you want to minimize the use of PPE so you can actually have conversations even right outside a room with a provider and a patient, but also uh, in this period where patients aren't able to have uh, visitors because we're protecting everyone, 
uh, to have them communicate with their loved ones. So uh, we recently got a donation from a, a wonderful organization of about 30 iPads uh, that we've primarily been using in our ED, but also using in our inpatient setting. And we have this wonderful story of one of our patients who is a, uh, um, I believe, a Guatemalan uh, uh, immigrant, uh, and we were able to connect uh, that patient uh, uh, post-recovery uh, or as he continued to uh, recover from um, the coronavirus with his family in Guatemala via uh, uh, FaceTime. So just a wonderful, wonderful story of the way that our, our staff have been able to um, adjust their practices in support of a uh, population that, you know, is really struggling with this uh, just as we are. Yes, it is such a, um, I, I, it's hard for me to even describe what it's like to take care of patients in the hospital. I still do. I've been doing hip fracture surgeries. I mean, people are mm. still breaking their hips mm-hmm. and, and have those patients be alone in the hospital. It's, it's just unthinkable, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like an, uh, a never event that would have, that would have been before. Yep. And now this is just what we have to do. And yeah. it's, it's difficult. I mean, it, it's difficult. It's very difficult for the patients. It's very difficult for their families. Um, and I, I mean, I find it's difficult for me too. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. sooner, the sooner, the sooner we can get through this, the better for all. I think, uh, I know everyone would agree with that statement. So, so about your healthcare workers, have you had to lay off people? Have you had to, uh, decrease, uh, their payment? I mean, we read about healthcare systems that are reducing compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to their physicians and nurses, and I mean the different yeah. different providers in, in their systems, uh, yeah. because of the significant financial impact. Um, so, so how have you been able to manage that in your system? Yeah, now Mary, again, another great question. You know, we we so far, in short, so far the answer to that is no. We we haven't had to take any of those measures at at this juncture, and we certainly hope to be able to to avoid it. But the impact is real, and um, what we have tried to do, our board, uh, uh, in support of, uh, or I should say, in concert with our county partners, is really stress to our staff that the most important thing is our community and our preparedness to support that community, and we want to deal with that as our principal uh, priority, and then we'll deal with finances and everything else uh, uh, when we need to and as that comes. And, and, and you know, I, I have said to staff, I certainly hope that we can um, we can avoid uh, any sort of austere measures of that nature. We think um, that unfortunately, uh, with uh, what everything else that's happening in our economy, we may actually end up with more people who are on public uh, insurance and programs, and that is a significant portion of our peer mix. And so we could uh, actually see a, an increase in people who are uh, enrolled with plans that are assigning uh, them or allocating them to our system or enrolling in our uh, care at our system. So, so we'll see what the future holds. The current situation, though, is quite tough, uh, but it hasn't gotten to the point where we've had to either do layoffs or furloughs or any of that stuff. We have had uh, uh, staff who've had to take leave for various reasons, whether to care for themselves or a loved one. Um, We uh, were exempt from the Families First Medical Leave Act that Congress passed a couple of months ago because we're healthcare providers and uh, essential workers. uh, we took a, an approach as an organization that uh, we really wanted to honor our staff and um, 
recognize the challenges that they're facing in adapting to this in their family situations and their uh, personal lives as well as their professional lives and try to remove as many barriers as possible to supporting them so that they could support the community. And so we did extend uh, those benefits uh, to our workforce. And that, uh, quite honestly, has put a bit of a strain in certain parts of the organization that people have began to use them, understandably so, uh, to, to meet their personal needs. So, so, so far, uh, we have not uh, um, invoked any of those things. We have had staff who have um, uh, generously volunteered to take leave as our volume has been down or to uh, flex downward. And we've been doing some of those things, but other people uh, electing to use uh, vacation, a lot of our administrative staff um, uh, to uh, um, you know, support the, or out of respect for the generosity of our taxpayers and make sure that we are, we're being good fiscal stewards. Um, uh, so, so we're monitoring, we're obviously pursuing all the resources we can through um, uh, the federal government, state and others to support uh, the organization from lost revenue and, and costs that we continue to incur and the benevolence of our donors, uh, uh, which we're hoping to uh, receive more support. Our foundation has done a good job so far. We need more uh, and we'll see where we, where we end. But so far we've been okay. I feel the need to comment on, uh, the, on the vision of the leadership in your community and the support that you enjoy. No one is going to let your health system close or fail. I, I think that it's clear from your comments that, uh, that your uh, local political and community leaders understand that a safety net hospital is as important to them as the police department or the fire department. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested in advice that you would have for someone running a safety net hospital who doesn't have that level of backup support, not because people in the community may not believe that it's important to keep the hospital open, but mm-hmm. just because they, they, don't, they don't have the resources to provide. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I asked that question because um, it was a couple weeks after we had stopped doing elective surgeries here, and I was speaking with a colleague of mine who practices at a small hospital in Kansas. And she told me that they were still doing elective surgeries. And I, I was really kind of taken aback. Hmm. And I said, well, how, how, how's that, you know, like, how's that working? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you know, we screen patients. Well, what do you mean you screen patients? There's no testing. I mean, there's not, we don't have enough tests, but right. we checked your temperature. Now we all know that that's not an effective way of really screening patients. And she, and she said to me that the, the balance here is this community needs this hospital. And in hmm. order for this hospital to survive, we have to try and generate as much financial revenue as we can to support the hospital mm-hmm. uh, or, or the hospital will close. And when we get over this pandemic, there will be no hospital for the community. Mm. And I, I think it was a, a very uh, important perspective because I'm not sure that a lot of people in this country understand that we have seen a record number of safety net hospital closures and not just in inner cities. You know, we, everyone right. can think about Hahnemann in Philadelphia That's right. last year, which was still shocking to me. I went to medical school in Philadelphia. Mm. I mean, I couldn't imagine Hahnemann closing. We see, um, record numbers of rural hospital closures. So, so what 
advice would you give the CEO of that hospital or health system that doesn't enjoy as much um, support as you do? Yeah, uh, great question. And and, and let me uh, be clear. Uh, uh, we, we have challenges and we have quite a lot of them. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, our, 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 our tax base is what it is and we try, we do our best. And so we, we, there isn't a, there is probably a, a week, certainly a week, but uh, almost a day that doesn't go by where we're trying to, you know, stretch a dollar uh, a bit more to, to serve our, our needs and, and trying to be thoughtful about that, right? Like, you know, keeping someone healthy and well in the community, uh, if you do it in a thoughtful, strategic way can oftentimes be a lot less than, you know, a very significant and avoidable hospitalization for yeah, a absolutely. medical need or a behavioral health need and otherwise. So we struggle with that uh, here, but I would say, uh, and you may know, I um, have the fortunate serve on a couple of uh, uh, industry-related boards. So the American Hospital Association, I work closely with America's Essential Hospitals, which is uh, local or um, uh, uh, exclusive to or focus uh, predominantly on um, hospitals that uh, serve disproportionately underserved communities, safety net hospitals, and otherwise uh, uh, teaching uh, hospitals and the like, um, as well as Oakland in California. So my advice, uh, would be um, obviously uh, my colleagues, and of which I know a lot of. Um, uh, we 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 understand the importance of the mission, and we understand the uh, immense responsibility that we have for those providers, those nurses, those doctors, those uh, non-clinical providers who are committed to serving uh, this population. Oftentimes, because they come from these communities, uh, like I do myself, uh, and so it really is a calling. Just it is as it is for others, uh, but really a calling and a privilege uh, to serve these communities. And so I think we take that and, and it really, the, the case makes itself. And so uh, we have an obligation to work with our local leaders, but our uh, uh, state and federal leaders to, to be that voice, to, to, to give uh, voice to what's happening in our communities and, and do provide the best advocacy we can to say, you know, the absence of resources to support an integrated delivery system, whether that is all within one system or a collaboration between others, not just to uh, purely keep a hospital open. I have to say that. I mean, that is incredibly important in some communities. It's much more important than, than others because it can be not just the largest employer, but sometimes the the the, the main driver of the economy for those or uh, those communities. So I totally respect that. I think we have a responsibility to advocate um, uh, as as fiercely as we are fiercely, I should say, as we can for those communities. And at the same time, work closely with our communities to say, this is a community trust, whether it's a public hospital and safety net or not-for-profit or even a private hospital. And, and because of that, we have to work with the community to say, how do we how do we scale it uh, to be able to serve the community needs? But how do we look at this in a much more um, robust and integrated fashion too, so that we're not just serving the need of the organization and saying the hospital absolutely has to stay open. It has to be the size that it is. It has to have the services and the configuration that it is. But let's work with everyone to say, you know, if it makes a lot more sense to have a robust ambulatory infrastructure here, scale this back, maybe not come close it completely uh, because we want to sustain as much as possible uh, or make it as sustainable as possible, then we, are, we have an obligation uh, to be doing that. And that's really tough. Um, it is, there are no easy answers here uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but that's what we have to do. And I think we'll engender the type of support and goodwill as much as we can because we're not advocating for ourselves. We're advocating for the community. And at the end of the day, that's who we serve. That's, uh, that's exactly who we should all be serving, right, is our communities. Um, let me ask, 
we will get through this pandemic. We're going to come out on the other side at some point. What is it that you would like to see happen would help make us more resilient to the next pandemic? That's a great question. <laughs> a really great question. Well, I mean, in your, if, if, you, if you had a magic wand, right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you could wave it and say, I'm going to make this better, what would you want better so that yeah. So that because it's it's probably unrealistic for us to think this is the last pandemic. I mean, this virus could mutate. I mean, who mm-hmm. knows? Mm-hmm. And and how do we be better prepared in terms of health of individuals? Obviously, yeah. we could be you know we can look at PPE, we can look at vaccines, we can look at supply, we can look at all kinds of things to hopefully be better prepared. If heaven forbid we have another pandemic, but what can what would you want to have happen? in terms of health in communities that would yes. make your health system um, be able to be less burdened, have fewer patients on ventilators? I mean, what, what would you want to have changed? So uh, just to, to, to uh, a nod to what you just said, though, um, you know, preparedness is certainly something that uh, we have always espoused and, and, you know, in fairness, have done. You know, there's a lot of things that we have, unfortunately, in, in, endured in this, um, um, in this country around, uh, you know, either mass shootings or other forms of mass casualty where our, our resources and the might of our, our delivery system have really shown up. You know, people, uh, the uh, heroic nature of our providers, our doctors, our nurses, and everyone really uh, can rise to that occasion. I think um, this pandemic and a viral uh, um, uh, epidemic or pandemic like this really does underscore, like, your heroism only goes so far if you're not addressing the the structural basis of what's happening in your society. So uh, uh, to me, your question raises that point. Uh, We have talked a lot about and we've done and made some strides in many areas, some more than others around health equity uh, um, and inclusion. And it is certainly something in our organization we've struggled with, uh, uh, but I I submit that we we have to continue to struggle with that. Uh, We we say that our, our, our sort of interpretation of what it means to um, advance population health is that the people who we serve aren't just the recipients of our care, but they're, they're conduits and the facilitators of, our care, of the care that we offer to them. And I think in that way, that means that we are doing things to truly acknowledge those um, underlying disparities that they face um, uh, and dealing with them in a much more holistic way. So not just a handout, as uh, the adage says, a hand up. Uh, and it's tough when you think about it from a healthcare delivery perspective, because I, I understand uh, many of my peers and they say, that's just not my expertise. You know, my expertise is getting you that surgery that you need, getting you that diagnostic test that you need, getting you, you know, in and out and, and, and up and on your way in three to four days and avoiding that um, um, hospital acquired infection. That's my that's my wheelhouse. That's my technical expertise. And that's absolutely vital. Uh, we've got to find a way to make sure that where that other expertise lives, uh, which is uh, absolutely in the community with our public health par- uh, partners, and make sure that um, the investments in those uh, areas are, are substantial enough that, that that collaboration can happen in a way that that expertise is leveraged and combined with ours and uh, the community is better for forward. I think uh, this really just called that out. Um, 
Some people think that we need a lot more hospital beds. We need a lot more ventilators. Um, we have to be ready for the next one of these. And maybe there's some argument to the calibration of those things and how we coordinate, making sure that we can marshal them and coordinate that better is absolutely the case. Uh, but I worry that if we do if we if we lean too much in that direction, knowing how expensive that is and 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 how much it takes to sustain that, that we will st- we may in, inadvertently be furthering uh, the the very disparities that we're trying to um, to address. Which is we need to get more upstream. We need to take care of people uh, better. We need to make sure there's equitable distribution of resources that are consistent with need uh, and not just with you know where where their infrastructure already exists or where the resources may. Uh, already be uh, robust because uh, that may, again, just be exacerbating our problem. We have to get upstream and we have to serve uh, communities that are marginalized in ways that brings that floor up to a level that it may not be where everyone else is, but it it can't be so low that when we see these things happen, we're we're just completely caught uh, uh, flat-footed. And I think that's, that's, we have a responsibility to do a better job at that. I could not agree more. And I think addressing the underlying health status of individuals in our communities and really targeting those lower health status individuals or groups Mm -hmm. to try and get them healthier will be best to help them be healthier, right? But when we think of it from a health system, I mean, think of the resources that we could save and, and of course the lives that we, and we can think of how, you know, a pandemic or, or some you know, horrible flu season could be shortened because people are fundamentally more resistant to getting mm-hmm. sick. Mm-hmm. And, and really, I think getting um, our minds around how we're all connected in this and we cannot uh, feel that we're isolated. That's so, right. I, mean, I mean, money, position, affluence doesn't protect you from this virus That's right. and everybody has some risk and some exposure. So let's all be healthier so that everyone's risk can be lower. Anyway, that would, that's what I hope we, um, we come out the other side with more people aligned uh, with that vision of how we need to, you know, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Make everybody healthier. I couldn't have stated it better. Um, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head and I hope I, I really, truly hope that that is the uh, one of the key takeaways we take from this experience. And I believe we will get to the other side, but we have to we have to avoid having this level of an impact uh, uh, and a disproportionate impact uh, um, uh, the next time this happens, whenever right. that is. Delvecchio, as, as we close this podcast, I'd just like to ask you how you're holding up through all this. There's a lot of stress involved in this pandemic for for our uh, healthcare professionals and our healthcare leaders like you. So I just, I'd just like to check in with you, do a check in with you. How are you doing? How's your family doing? Well, uh, thank you so much for asking. You know, I, I have to uh, say that I, I'm incredibly blessed and fortunate to have uh, the support of a, a loving wife and a beautiful daughter. And they have, uh, they've been sheltering in place for a number of weeks and my daughter's homeschooling now. She's about to turn seven. Uh, but I, I check on them every day to make sure that they are giving each other space because the temperature can get a little uh, hot in the house, but they are doing wonderful. And by that, um, as a result of that, they have been incredibly supportive of, of, of me. Um, since this has happened, you know, we've been basically running an incident command uh, seven days a week. And um, 
that has resulted in me uh, largely consistently doing six to seven day uh, uh, rounds here at the hospital. And um, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm in a polo shirt here and a hat because I've been rounding with our EVS staff and assessing um, our practices around cleanliness and making sure that they are safe and really uh, valuing the incredible uh, role that they play in making sure that our patients and our staff are safe as well. And so, you know, really, I draw my strength from them and um, um, people seeing people be so selfless and uh, to really stand up and honor this community and their their expectations of us to be here to serve them when when they need us even more than they they normally do has just been um, it's been re reinvigorating for me. It's been inspiring for me. Um, I share it with our organization an adage that I um, heard as a kid and my chief operating officer reminded me of, and it was that adversity doesn't uh, build character, it reveals character. And uh, my commitment every morning is to uh, show this organization uh, who I have a privilege of serving and leading, uh, that my character is one that has has seen a lot and has gone through a lot. And, it's, and, and, and I've survived all of that. And, and my commitment is to show them that I'm with them and we will survive this as well. So through that, I'm, you know, it's tough. I will, I will concede that, uh, but, but we are doing okay. And uh, uh, our hearts go out to our colleagues in other parts of the country uh, who've experienced uh, this pandemic, um, including our colleagues in Connecticut, New York and tri-state area, uh, Seattle and you now certain parts of the Southeast. Um, our hearts are and our thoughts are, are with you all and and uh, and we draw our strengths from you too and we really are committed to just being here together so so thank you for asking you're very welcome um i i just think that is uh just a, a small example of the quality of your leadership that you are rounding with all the different groups and checking on them because i know how valuable that makes your staff feel and that they can sense uh, that you appreciate them. And, and sometimes those actions, uh, I find them very powerful and so meaningful. And so kudos, um, that's, that's fantastic. So I know we, we, we need to come to a close. Um, I want to thank you, Mr. Finley, on behalf of Movement is Life, for the generosity of your time and for your leadership in American medicine. Oh. I know your community is fortunate to have you. And to our audience and listeners, thank you for joining us. We look forward to bringing you additional podcasts related to this horrible pandemic. Until then, stay safe and be well.